Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Drew Hastings has been a stand-up comedian for over 25 years. He spent most of his life in the state of Ohio outside of a 12-year stint in Hollywood. His memoir called Chasing Drew Hastings is out today, February 1st, 2022, if you're listening to this on the release date, and I hope you are. I learned from reading Chasing Drew Hastings that his early life was much like a chemist creating the perfect formula for a stand-up comic. Get this, his dad left when Drew was seven years old and started a new family. And here's a clincher. He had a son in the second family who he named Drew. Drew did what every comedian wants to do and tried out the Hollywood scene to get a TV show and even wrote a couple scripts of his own. You can read Chasing Drew Hastings to find out how that went. Drew became very popular in the syndicated Bob and Tom show in the early 2000s and got a big career boost, which eventually brought him back to small town Ohio. It wasn't until his 50s that Drew found a cause that could take him away from drugs, video games, depression to use all the common sense, intelligence, and knowledge he didn't even know he had, being the mayor of Hillsboro, Ohio. This, along with the purchase of a cattle farm, changed Drew at a time when most of us past middle-aged folks get really set in their ways. Chasing Drew Hastings is a fascinating true story that encapsulates what makes most stand-up comedians do what they do and takes us down some dirt roads that surprise all of us, including Drew. Make sure to get your copy of Chasing Drew Hastings at your local bookstore or find the link in the show notes to order from Amazon. This is a truly fascinating talk with a truly unique comedian. Enjoy. Drew. How are you? Thanks so much for being on the show. This is a really good moment for me. You're one of the comedians that kind of shaped my 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 own comedy that I didn't start until I was in my 50s and this was a really I, I really like the fact that you really started another life in your 50s and did so well with it because that gives me hope that I can actually be a decent comedian someday. So I, I really enjoyed that. And folks, if you're watching live, I know there's a few of you watching live. I am going to put in the chat a few times during this, I am going to put the link to pre-order Chasing Drew Hastings from Amazon. So you can go right there and pre-order and that way it'll show up in your Kindle or you can get the hardback or paperback or however it comes as soon as it gets shipped out. So that's gonna go up a few times during the conversation. Drew, I, as I told you, I had planned on reading part of the book before we talked and mm -hmm. the problem was it was so engaging and I got into it so much that I just read the whole damn thing. And uh, it was- you. 
I, I really appreciated the honesty of the book. It was, it was a, a very honest book about your life, and it's not just comedy. And this is going to be a little change of pace episode. I usually want to just talk about how you write and how you book shows, how you put an album together. I just I really want to dig into the book, and then maybe we can come back another day and just talk about all the comedy part. But I think this really shows how your early life shaped you as a to be a comedian you had all the right el- and i just want to work through that because the book was just fascinating to me thank you so the first question i ask is what made you want to write the book it wasn't that i wanted so much to write the book i was compelled to write the book when i started writing the book i'm giving away a little bit of a what is that called when you they call it nowadays a, what do they call that when you give something up in advance of the episode? Um, uh, a teaser? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, a spoiler. Spoiler, there um, you go. But when I started writing this book about six years ago, I didn't have a child. I didn't have a son. Mm-hmm. And so when I wrote the book, when I was writing the book, I was very aware that I just, I wanted some kind of legacy. I was, I wanted to be like, I think all, which I think is universal to agree. We want to be remembered in some way. And I think that was a kind of a driving force. And so anyway, and I thought I had good stories to tell. When I started writing, the book was very different from how it ended up. I thought mm-hmm. I was going to be, I thought I was going to be the next David Sedaris. I really liked David <laughs> Sedaris. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, I thought, oh, it's going to be a book of humorous stories and essays. And then my editor said, there's already a David Sedaris and <laughs> collections of stories don't usually sell well. Mm-hmm. And he's the darling of NPR. So yeah, he's huge, but you're not starting from there. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, okay. So he convinced me to make it a, a memoir, a long, continuous one book, mm-hmm. as opposed to episodic. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that does. Without me digressing way off. That does. And I, I really appreciate it because you really put, you, you tore your heart out and put it on the page. And I, I really enjoyed that. The other thing I really liked was you stuck with your life and you didn't do a whole bunch of name dropping and just being that Hollywood guy. You didn't, you didn't, I guess you didn't glamorize anything. And I, that, that's why I liked it. it was down dirty. It came from inside your head. It came from real life experiences. And that's what really drew me. And it wasn't the typical Hollywood dude memoir. Yeah. In fact, when I think about it, I only mention a couple of guys, especially in, in, in the comedy world, yeah, by name, really. Yep. And one was the guy that was instrumental, absolutely, in getting me to Hollywood and was the reason for me leaving, Drake Sather, who's now passed, and Bob Odenkirk, yeah. who had been a supporter of mine and is one of the is one of the few guys i shouldn't say few there are more than a few but was one of the guys that struck me 
who always struck me as a genuinely nice guy. And I really liked that mm-hmm. about him. And so he he ended up getting mentioned because he was involved. But you're right. I, I didn't drop a lot of names because I tried to keep the book. It was about my journey, really, yeah. which is why some of my friends would say, friends that I've had for 40 years, how come I'm not even mentioned in the book? <laughs> or there's one <laughs> sentence. Because it wasn't about my life. It was about this journey. And so you, I kind of tried to keep it focused on that. Yeah. yeah. And the focus was appreciated because I've read plenty of them where it's really just a name dropping thing. It's I, I hung out with this guy, I hung out with this lady and who cares? Because right. if you weren't there, it doesn't mean anything to you. You're just seeing no. a name. Yeah. I, I really appreciated that. So I, what I want to do is give during our talk, a synopsis of the book, just enough so that we do that teaser because I know everybody's going to want to get it anyway, but I, I wanted to talk about your childhood first a little bit because golly, that is, uh, you have the ripest, breeding ground for a comedian as a child that I think anybody could have. (laughs) You've got the absentee father and you've got the dichotomy of living in Ohio and yet your mom is British and all that type of stuff. Can you put that in a brief synopsis of your childhood and how you came out of that? Like most kids, you tend to think you're somewhat normal because you're just a kid growing up. Mm -hmm. I was very aware uh, that my mother was very English, very British. Mm -hmm. And I considered myself just a Midwest kid. I think, I'm not sure if I mentioned in the book or not, but I I remember a time my mother had said, my God, what are you doing? You have no shoes on. (laughs) And I said, mom, it's summertime. I'm going barefoot. Well, (laughs) You look like an urchin like the other children in the neighborhood. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And, and she goes, better. And I didn't realize till decades later that that's a little bit of the elitism of the British that you should know better. You're more civilized than those people down the street. Yeah. And uh, so... <laughs> Not that my mom was a monster or anything else. She wasn't, but that's just a British sensibility, Uh particularly, you know, from her generation. So I was very aware. And I also spoke differently. I enunciated clearly. And guys, would you like to go to the cinema? Yeah. And, uh, oh, he sounds like a faggot. I was aware of that kind of dichotomy. My, My idols, my cinema idols were John Wayne very American, very Midwestern, mm-hmm. and David Niven, mm-hmm. and or Rex Harrison also, and two very different ideas of what men were. But that's who I saw as my role models. Yeah, there. and you, uh, I thought it was neat. To, I, I think you got some of your style from uh, David Niven, but you also got it from your stepdad. And uh, and uh, you carried that through and to, to now, really, didn't you? Yes. It's funny. I tend to think of my stepfather as a really a negative influence to give the listener a little bit of backstory. My mother is very English. We were Episcopalian and all that. And my mother remarried when I was young and married into an Orthodox Jewish family. And my stepfather was Jewish, though he didn't 
he wasn't an Orthodox guy. He was, he didn't, he wasn't, he was more, much more liberal than that. Mm. But, but he, he was very much like, he reminded you of Dean Martin. Uh-huh. He had that same kind of look, that same lifestyle. And I was in awe of that. He rubbed off on me. I'd never seen men that wore jewelry and that had cigarettes hanging from their mouth all the time and a drink in their hand. And uh, and he was in business. And so I equate wheeling and dealing in business with men. And so he rubbed off on me in a lot of ways that weren't necessarily negative. But for example, I've always been into getting dressed, wearing uh, nice clothes. I've worn a suit on stage for a long time mm-hmm. when a lot of people were never wearing suits. And and I think that's because he was a sharp dresser that rubbed off on me and certain things like that, that weren't negatives, mm-hmm. but his lifestyle to a degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rubbed off. Was there a little bit of him in your Jack Freeman character? Maybe not the dress so much, but some of the mannerisms because yes. I, I, I really, I, I, I got that. I, I, it seemed like some of those mannerisms and and just the, the way you spoke and the how much you thought of yourself. That that character was, after I read about your stepdad, I said, oh, there's a little bit of Jack Freeman there. So that's one of the pieces you put into that. That's funny you say that. I've never thought of that until you just said it. But you're right. The mannerisms Uh from Jack Freeman came from my stepfather. Yeah. The sensibility, the attitude of Jack Freeman came from the old school success motivational speakers that were around in the 60s and 70s that I used to read. All those guys who back then success was driving a Cadillac, a big wad of cash and a blonde sitting next to you. That was success. (laughs) And um, that's the way those old school guys were. And so I, Jack Freeman came out of that school, Yeah, you know. And one of my favorite times seeing you was when Jack Freeman was your feature. And I, it was really neat to watch how, to look at what was similar and what was different between you and Jack, because those mannerisms are something that I remember. It was, he was different in the way he stood and in the way his cadence of language was, and just the whole thing was different. And yet then when you come out as yourself, I was always looking for those similarities. There weren't too many, but there was a few there. There was enough of you and Jack Freeman that it was a real character that it was believable that this dude actually existed. (laughs) Yeah, I really liked doing that character. And he was very popular. And I could have taken him a lot further. There's guys who have built entire careers on guys like that. Yeah. But I've never been like that. I've been like, wow, I did it. Wow, that really worked. Uh-huh. Made an impact. People liked him. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. And uh, But in a way, he limited himself because Jack Freeman was a very one-dimensional character yeah. who only had interest or concerns in a few things. And Mm -hmm. it was difficult to write. After a while, they just become boxcars. You're writing bits or something, and they all, after a while, start to sound the same, Mm -hmm. which I didn't want to do with him. Now, the Jack Freeman, the one-man show that I did in Hollywood, 
The Business of Living, which is where that character started. Bob Odenkirk directed that stage show, and it was much deeper, more reflective then. He actually had a, the ability to reflect. Yeah. And then he would, of course, and say, what am I thinking? That's a bunch of horseshit. That's yeah. not going to make you any money. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I loved doing that character. Yeah, that's, and I, I absolutely loved it too. It was funny reading that. I, I just, it all came back. It, it, it's funny how things go out of your mind for so long and it all came back because I think it was maybe, I don't know, you know, 2006 or 2007 I saw you in South Bend do that and it, it was and and our my friend Marsha Tusky and her husband took me and for some reason my wife couldn't go and she was so excited she loved you and anytime uh, that she could see you it was like Drew Hastings from Bob and Tom I gotta see him and it's just, you are always her favorite so she's gonna love this episode let's talk about Moving to L.A., let's talk about why you did it and why you got the hell out of there. I was a typical comedian in the late 80s. Came up in that kind of golden age of the road and comedy club scene that was huge then. And I subscribed to the theory, I didn't realize it then, I do now, very much the country music model. A lot of comedians don't yeah. necessarily come from that model, but mm. I came from the country music model, which is you go out, you do the road relentlessly, you do the same, you do cities over and over, you do this for years, and you ground, swell, build an audience. Mm -hmm. And you build an audience personally. And then you take that and try to hopefully do something with it. I was in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was a feature act for an LA headliner named Drake Sather, who I didn't know at all. And he had said to me that week, we were hanging out, he goes, Jesus, Hastings, you're a walking sitcom. You've got to go to LA. You, you have to. And I'm like, huh? And so I listened to him and I'd been, I'd probably been on the road in 48 weeks a year kind of thing for at that point, about seven years, maybe this was in like 91 or so or two, 92 maybe. And then I, so I moved to LA. I slept on the floor of his apartment in, in LA and, and that was it. And then he introduced me around and he got me in at the improv in Hollywood. And, and I was a regular at the laugh factory and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so that got you there. And then you, you tried, yeah, you tried really hard to get some stuff going and you, you were able to do some stuff. What was it that finally told you that you just had to get back, you, you had to get out of there. It wasn't going to be good for you. I was very fortunate I had, I was there maybe two years and my friend Drake was represented by the biggest manager in Hollywood at the time, mm -hmm. a guy named Jimmy Miller, who is actually Dennis Miller's brother, Jimmy Miller and a company then called Gold Miller and Jimmy, Jimmy signed me at the time his clients were gary come on uh gary, he's dead oh shandling yeah shandling judd apatow 
Drake, uh, a few other large names that people would be shocked. I can't remember their names, but I can't. So I was with that firm and I was lucky. I was the lowest guy on the totem pole, but I got a deal. This was in the years NBC was really coming back and that was the must-see TV, uh, NBC. Yeah. And uh, Warren Littlefield was the president at the time of NBC. And I got a deal for a sitcom and knew nothing about how that all worked. Drake and I were had to write uh, a pilot, which we did. I guess I can give it away what happened with that show, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 My show, which was called Taking Stock, which was based on a kind of a fledgling, tiny little financial channel, which actually, in reality, ended up becoming a show on CNBC 10 years later. And it was a very funny show. We wrote it. Everybody thought it would get picked up. Oh, my God, Drew. This is, you're getting picked up. Get ready. You're a star, dude. Uh Everybody thought this show would get picked up. It did not get picked up. And the the one show that it was competing against, everybody said, no, nothing's going to happen. It's an ensemble comedy, which they aren't really popular. And frankly, they aren't comics and they're a bunch of pretty faces. And I said, what's it called? And they said, it's called Friends. (laughs) And the rest is history. So (laughs) I was the guy that lost out to Friends. Uh And uh, and then, of course, in, in Hollywood, you're discovered. And then something like that happens and then you're undiscovered and you really have to go away and just die for a while. And then at some point, hopefully you're rediscovered. Yeah. And that's what I had to do. And, um, but I, and then I ended up in other sitcom deals, but I I wouldn't admit it at the time to anybody there, but I wasn't enamored with the whole television. See, I didn't watch television. Mm. I think television is, for the most part, mindless. People tend to forget why television shows exist. They only exist to sell soap detergent or allergy medicine. Uh That's the only reason they exist. Nobody, they don't make a show to say, let's make a show about Tom and Tina who have a wacky life in their apartment, they make the show so that you will watch the commercials and buy the products. That's It, it hasn't changed since Procter & Gamble sponsored shows in the 1950s. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I was never a big fan of television, and I viewed making sitcoms, and there's guys out there that will hate me for this because it's just it sounds ungrateful, but I, I don't mean to be ungrateful, It was glorified factory work to me. Mm -hmm. It was sit in the trailer. Okay, Hastings, you're on. Come out, slip in a pile of fake dog poop. Ooh, that damn dog. (laughs) Okay, cut. That was great. Back to the trailer. And I just had no interest in doing that after a while. Yeah. And um, that, and so I didn't quote, want it bad enough. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and the worst thing you can be is un, not ambitious enough in Hollywood. Right. And it was, I was destined to be, end up depressed there and miserable because it, I didn't realize at the time I was having a slow realization, but I didn't, it wasn't what I really wanted, but I loved stand up. I loved the art of stand up, and mm-hmm. I loved doing shows on the road and creating new material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
at this point in your life, and I'll just say you were you're extremely self-centered and I, I've gone through that myself, but it seems to me that you didn't have the need to be that big household name. You, you didn't have to, you didn't have to be like, what's her name on friends, Courtney Cox or whatever. I never watch friends, so I don't know, but you don't have, you didn't have to be that in order to feel like you mattered on the earth. And, and I think that's the difference between you and everybody else that gets into sitcoms because they have that need. And I'm going to diss a show, but Cedric, the entertainer is on a show that's just awful. And Mm. Cedric, the entertainer is great. And this show is just, it's terrible. It's like the most cookie cutter stand-up or not stand-up, uh, situation comedy that you could ever imagine. And I'm like, why are you wasting your life doing this? Because you're so much better than that. But and, and so I, I agree with that. I'm not saying that if somebody gave me a deal that I wouldn't take it, but I can understand why you were deciding to go a different direction. Yeah, it happened uh, in my last few years there, but I will always admire immensely Dave Chappelle Mm. for walking away from that comedy central deal for what was it? 10 million or something at the time, which was huge money because they wouldn't let him do what he wanted and, and wouldn't let him, they wanted to keep him in a box and do Dave Chappelle. They wouldn't let him stretch beyond that to a degree. It was creative from what I understand him. Why he walked away from that. And I always, really respected and that's got that would have been very hard to do yeah that was that, that I was never a big had the deal. chance to walk away from 10 million i would have walked away from a couple thousand yeah. which i did but <laughs> 10 million yeah that's that's another story yeah and that was a big deal for that type of show too because artists did get a little bit more control after that and the only thing is they've reined it back in now so they don't have control again so that that changed things for a little bit deciding to leave la and go back to Ohio. This is about the time you got hooked into Bob and Tom pretty heavy. Can you talk about the Bob and Tom experience, how you got introduced to them and how you started to become a regular and so popular with them? Yeah, it was around 2000, maybe three or four. And I had been introduced to them and one on the show I want to say, I'm not positive, but I'm fairly sure I did Jack Freeman on their show initially. Mm. And they were like, whoa, <laughs> who the hell is this? That guy is funny. And then, of course, they'd talk to me off the air and they'd talk to Drew. But I think I went on and initially impressed them with Jack Freeman, if I recall. And then... They wanted me back, and then I started getting popular on that show really quickly. And then and then I was just myself on the show. I didn't realize it. I never thought about it. They have a long show, especially in those days. They had a long four-hour format, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of time to fill. And you came in at 6.37 in the morning and sat there at almost 10 a.m. And if you were a comedian that just, looked for a way to squeeze your bits in, 
you ran out of your material in the first show you were on or the first two shows. And yeah, dude, if you didn't have a personality, you couldn't hang a little bit of uh, improv. Yeah. A little bit of uh, improv. That's right. I was fortunate because I didn't really do bits on the show. I just was myself and I just, I gave opinions. I was, I've always been outspoken. And I think they found that refreshing somehow. I would just, I would give opinions and, and I was bombastic and all that. And so it just worked and it worked for their show and their format. And I think I was different from most of the guys at the time they had on. Mm -hmm. And then I just seemed to catch on and I was very fortunate. I owe them a great deal for um they really took me to a much different level that all my touring and some somewhat exposure in hollywood never did because at the time i think they've tightened up a little bit but they they were literally in i don't even know how many markets they were in tons of markets have shrank a little bit simply because radio has yeah but so that's how that went and i just and then i would go on the show and then eventually they decided to do a bomb and tom tour mm-hmm. i was fortunate enough i was on most of those tours i headlined a lot of those tours and, and that got me from when i first started on our show i was at you call 15 1800 a week headliner mm-hmm. and who couldn't name price or anything and and then i suddenly my prices tripled and then it was, I could say, I don't want to do the Wednesday night and I don't want to do the Sunday night. I just want to come in and do Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm. And because that's what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was able to do that. And then, and I was making a lot more money and it was just, it really did a lot for me, that show. Mm. Do you ever wonder how you became one of one of the most popular comedians on there because you were so different from everybody else. What, what what's the guy's name? Donnie. Oh, Baker. Donnie yeah. Baker. I think he was on those tours with Bob Zane. He's in the in the same thing, but he, he's still pretty different from you. You were you were a little bit more intellectual and a little bit more. You challenged people a little bit when you're on stage, and you, your crowd work was a little bit more. It had a little bit more of an edge to it, and you weren't afraid to speak your mind. So you were really different from that. Do you ever wonder how you were somebody who really caught on with them? No, but see, I've all, when I was on their show and and to a large degree, when I'm on stage, I don't think of myself as a comedian. Mm -hmm. I think of myself as, well, I'm a guy who's up here talking and you're not allowed to talk and I am. (laughs) And I have a nonstop one-sided conversation going on. And so it made sense to me that I I was working on the Bob and Tom show that was working because I I didn't see me as I got to do a bit. I, whoa, it's been two minutes. I got to get a punchline going. I I never saw me like that. And I was fortunate their show has changed to a degree. You, You had more leeway than more time to get a story out to do something. Now their format is much more tightened up mm. and it's all, it's much more sound bites. But 
and I don't fault them for that. That's the way a lot of content and media has gone. But yeah, so I guess that's how I... Did I answer the question? Yeah. Let me go back for a second. I want to just address one thing. Uh, You had said that my stuff was uh, a little intellectual or that was smart. I I really, in a way, disagree with that to a degree because I remember in Los Angeles, and they're, of course, very just condescending, but I remember agents and people in the business saying, "Your, your material is so intelligent and so bright how in god's name did you go over in the midwest (laughs) and i would look at them very surprised and i'd say i was born and raised in the midwest i started stand-up in the midwest in front of midwest audiences Mm -hmm. and i am midwest so Well, I am a product of the Midwest. So if you think for some reason that I'm smart or somehow intellectual, then you have to say that about a lot of people in the Midwest. Uh-huh. And I have always, and, and, and I think there are comedians who are maybe listening to this who will agree and maybe, but I think it's sometimes easy and maybe there's a number of comedians and or maybe it's a school of thought that tend to treat audiences, you got to dumb it down for them. You got to play down for them. I never in a million years considered, talked down to my audience. I always considered that they would have the same, be up on the same issues as me. And if they didn't, I would say things in a way that, oh, I see what he means. Yeah. They may not know when I'm making a reference to Gregor Mendel and genetics. Mm-hmm who Gregor Mendel was, but, oh yeah, Gregor Mendel, he must be like a genetics historic guy. Yeah, You know what I mean? So I don't, I've never felt the need that you need to somehow spoon feed an audience. I think, and you've seen that. I'm sure you've seen comedians that that play to the lowest common, it's called the lowest common denominator. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've never, I just have never felt that you have to do that. Oh yeah. I still do open mics and I go up after six guys that have eating ass jokes every time. Yeah. So it's yeah. just, I, I, and I, I introduce myself as a palate cleanser because I'm not going to do <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I totally understand. I just, I always thought that was just, it was a little bit different and you did, you, you had that Midwest sense of, ability and yet you also were not playing the lowest common denominator and you you were bringing up things that mattered during your set and it was just a little bit different than most of the bob and tom folks that came through where a lot of them were character driven and a a lot of them were a little bit more two-dimensional and funny still funny I'm, i'm not saying they weren't funny everybody has their own journey on comedy but you were just uh different you you were a little bit different than them and yet you rose to the top and I ended up doing very well with them. So I, I was impressed with that. And I was impressed with the Midwest because we're not all that stupid. Not at all. Yeah. And I'm finding the same thing in the South. Guess what? They're not all that stupid. It, it, That's right. it, it's just uh, some of the uh, things that you've been taught are not exactly what you think they are. Let's get right into Hillsborough and what brought you to Hillsborough. So can you just briefly tell that story? I, I don't want everybody, I, I don't want the whole story 
story out there because I want people to read the book. But I think this is a time in your life. It was such a turning point for you that I think we need to discuss it. I was in major depression in Hollywood. If anybody here is listening who knows Hollywood at all, I lived at the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Curse on Avenue, right on Hollywood Boulevard. And I was majorly depressed. I I was actually getting work. Um, I was getting work in, in LA, sitcom, little roles and pilots, stuff like that. But I was not happy at all. I'd started flying out. I was still flying out all the time and doing shows in the Midwest, mm. which was my uh, strong suit was the Midwest. And I just decided, you know what? I'm getting out of here. I'm, I want to jumpstart my creativity. I was in a real slump. I want to jumpstart my creativity. How do I do that? I want to do something. I want to move. I want to be somewhere I've never been before. What would that be? Rural. Go rural. <laughs> and I literally packed my stuff up, drove to Ohio, put all of my stuff in one of those public storage, you store it, you lock it places. Uh-huh. And then drove around like this for three months all over Southern Ohio looking for where I wanted to settle. Uh-huh. And and then one day was in a, a diner in Hillsborough and was reading the paper and there was a little farm for sale. And I was like, I could maybe afford that. And the rest was history. And that's how I ended up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of my favorite stories in the book is the fact that you couldn't quit smoking cigarettes to save your life. And your move to Hillsboro finally got that done. Can, can you tell me that story real quick? So uh, a little backstory I'd smoked. Oh my God. Since I was 16 and after about 30 years, I smoked 40 years. At about when I'd been smoking 30 years, I really wanted to quit. And I'd spent thousands on trying to quit with hypnosis, shantics, acupuncture, you name it. And all of it repeated over and over again. Mm. Books and tapes, God knows what. (laughs) And was not able to quit. So I'm in Hillsboro. I've been there maybe, I don't know, six months or so. And the guy who lived across the street from me lived in a mobile home across the road and a rural Appalachian mm-hmm. and a young guy, half my age. He must've been about 26. I was about 52. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and we had been fighting about feuding about something. And I'm standing in my driveway, having a cigarette and he's coming at me. He, leaves his trailer. He comes up, he's coming over the road and he's taking off his shirt. You mother, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And then he's cut and thin. He was work construction. And I'm like, Whoa, if this dude gets me down on the ground. I'm a dead man. And I will never forget as long as I live. I, flicked my cigarette away. I could still see it going end over end, slow motion. And I said to myself, that was my last cigarette. Uh I'm going to get my lungs back and I'm going to kick that hillbilly's (laughs) ass. And I don't know what it was. 
in his he saw if he saw something in my eyes. I don't know if he decided in the country, if you come on another person's property uninvited, that's they can pretty much do anything. Yeah. Shoot you, whatever. I don't know if he decided not to come up onto the property or he saw the look of my eyes, but for whatever reason, he stopped and mumbled to himself and grumbled and turned around, went back. And I never had another cigarette again. I didn't even, I never even thought about it. Uh It was almost a religious experience. Yeah. And I will never forget that. And I still marvel. That's how I quit. Yeah. And to this day, I thank that guy. He still lives in a trailer across the road from my farm. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. And th- th- that was one of the. His name one- is Sean, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> He's one of three Sean's. All right. Yeah. Are, are you guys friends now? <laughs> yeah. Friends enough. Yeah. yeah. We, we go up and down. Depends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as long as the light isn't just shining right in the window, That's I guess right. he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the moments I, I was reading that. I don't know. It was like midnight or something like that. And I read that and I'm like, holy shit, that's how he quit. Because I, I, I quit in similar fashion because I started when I was 12 and I was dating who ended up being my wife. And she said, I don't, I really don't like you smoking. So I did the same thing. I threw, I crumpled up my pack, put it away, never smoked another one. It was real easy. Wow. <laughs> But I, I was in love, so you know that right. that helped. <laughs> so one of the one of the really recurring themes during the beginning of the book was your depression and the fact that you really you couldn't get out of it. So there were there was periods of times where you played video games all day and all night, and basically all you did was work and sleep and do drugs and video games and stuff like that, and. One another defining moment for you when you went to Hillsborough and started working on the farm, something happened. Can you talk about how that helped the depression aspect? Yeah. So when I got to the farm, I it was immediately a new project. It was a whole different lifestyle. And for the first time, oh my gosh, since I was in my early twenties. I had physical labor to do or that had to be done that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And I started doing it and I got ambitious and I would dig fence posts and put in fence posts for fencing and I would clear brush and I would cut down trees and I would uh, fix the barn and I would do all this stuff. And I noticed After about a year, one day, I looked up and I said, wow, I'm not really depressed anymore. I really look forward to getting up every day and doing this. And it occurred to me, because I'd been in therapy back in L.A., seen a therapist off and on for a long time. All I really needed to do was chores. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is so true in life. It it's is. easy for us to laugh about it, but that is so true. That's a simplistic way to say it. All I needed to do was chores, but that's so true yeah. in life. Now, some people can say exercise, uh, daily regimen of exercise. Some people can say do this, but any activity that engages you, gets you passionate, gets you interested you could substitute for chores, but that's what it was. I had purpose. Yeah. And, purpose. and the, the thing I always say is 
folks in the 1800s didn't need therapists or didn't have depression because they didn't have time because they had to do things to keep themselves alive. And now we've got all, we've got all this great stuff that makes our lives more comfortable and more easy. And yet we feel unfulfilled because we are not doing anything. And, and that's where it comes from. And I suffer the same thing and you have to find something that makes you passionate. Otherwise it'll just eat you up. And, and I, that, that was really, I, that was, I really liked that part of the book. That was another one that just really enamored me to you as a person, not just a comedian. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. I also believe that we, I, 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 which is probably why I'm so self-deprecating, whether it's in the book or on stage, but I believe we are our own worst enemies, mm-hmm. always. And it's a matter of getting over that. Mm. And and hence, that's why things like the chores, it's about, yeah, purpose, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, Pur- purpose always helps. I want to touch on, we've been talking for a while now, but I want to touch on the whole mayor thing, how you got into it and why you did it. I want to leave a little bit for the readers, but v- very interesting. And and understanding this that part was almost a civics lesson on, on how uh, government really works, small town government really works. And can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because last night... I'm putting together how a lot of memoirs, a lot of books have a section of photographs in them. Here's him at an early age. Here's him in the one thing he was doing. Here's him. I didn't put photographs in the book. I didn't want that to be a distraction. And what I did was something different. I put in the very front of the book, I put to view a photo gallery Mm -hmm. of pictures related to this book. Go to Drew Hastings memoir thing Mm. gallery. And it's not up yet, but I was working on it last night. And I, I was getting mayoral pictures together. And I was looking at pictures when I became mayor. And I wasn't flabbergasted, but I was blown away at how I, I never, I didn't realize at the time how different I looked. For You're talking big, spiky hair, almost Johnny Depp. Uh, 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 and I wore black all the time. And so I, I so can see why people either liked me or did not like me at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow. I really had no idea how unlikely I was. Mm-hmm. So I had been, <laughs> I had conned my best friend who had been my best friend of 40 years who was living in Southern California, way down Orange County, running an an assisted living center. (laughs) And I conned him into moving to Hillsboro. Bob, oh, what a cool town. Oh, you'll love it here. You've got to come. Come on back to Midwest. He was from Ohio too. Uh And so he moved back. And we were walking around uptown Hillsboro which suffered from a lot of the things that Midwest small towns suffer with the rise of Walmarts and with the rise of the big box stores and everything else the 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 little small town downtown died. Everything moved out to buy the Walmart. And so our uptown was hurting and it was grimy and neglected. And I'd said to him, Jesus, man, who the hell runs this town? 
God, I could do better than this. <laughs> and he said, why don't you? <laughs> and I thought about it. Yeah. Okay. So I ended up running for mayor or as I like to say it, well, I was used to disappointing people on an individual basis <laughs> and I wanted to try to expand on that effort. So I, I, I was really passionate about some things and I went around and I would talk to people. What's important to you? What's important to you? What's wrong with this town? What's wrong? And I took the number one and two things, three things that I heard. And I said, well, that's what I'll fix or that's what I'll uh, work on. One was our fire department who that's a whole nother story, but, uh, and it's in the book, but, and I ended up solving the problem, but only solved the problem because I had no idea that you could not solve it. Mm -hmm. And I was too naive and ignorant to know that you can't solve that problem. And I did, but only cause I didn't know I couldn't, mm. but there was that, there was economic development and infrastructure. And so I ran, I ended up winning in technically a landslide. And then I just rolled up my sleeves. Now I was naive enough to think, oh, this isn't going to really affect my comedy career. I go in the mayor's office three, <laughs> four days a week. And then I fly out and I go do Bob and Tom tours. The problem was like anything I get involved with, like the farm or anything else, I immerse myself in it and give it 110%. I knew nothing about mayoring, municipalities, Ohio revised code, infrastructure. And so I started reading up on it and reading up on it and going to workshops and going to conferences. And I was in the office 80, 90 hours a week. And then, and it did affect my comedy career because I wasn't writing new material. Mm -hmm. I was writing material, but now it was called policy. Uh, and I was writing speeches instead of comedic rants. And so that's what happened. And then uh, I'm really glad I was mayor. I was mayor for two terms and I think made a big difference. And I think a lot of people would agree with that, but it cost me. It was hard on me. Mm -hmm. It was hard on me mentally, very hard on me just from some stuff that happened in the book. And, and it affected my comedy career. It definitely hurt my comedy career. I didn't mind that so much because I was doing something else mm -hmm. that was bigger than me. And I'd never done anything for anybody else. I'd always been me oriented. Well, I was single. I didn't have children. Yeah. What else is there to be other than me oriented, particularly if you're a comedian or it's very yeah. easy to default to me. So one, uh, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Yeah, one of my favorite right. quotes from the book is the idea of doing something for a cause bigger than me was well ludicrous. What possible cause could be bigger than me? Yeah. And it's, I, yeah, that's in the book. And I just loved how you came out of that. You went into it being a more inward facing type person to being a completely outward facing type person and seeing what was going on around you. I really love that part. Thank you. A lot of people will relate to this and I'm not sure who all listens to your show. If it's a lot of, if there's a lot of other comedians, if it's a lot of the general public who, but there are people will relate to this. I think if you're, especially if you're an urban person, you live in a city, when you live in a city, see, I had no sense of community. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what a sense of community was. Yeah. I'd always lived in a city. And as I said, in Los Angeles, if somebody died in your apartment building, 
oh, did you hear that the old lady up there on fifth floor died? I, I didn't even know her name. Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, you remember that hippie dude that lived down the hall from us, Schaefer? Yeah, he died, man. Oh, or the guy down in the basement apartment got in a big car wreck. Did you hear about that? But it was all very anonymous. You didn't mm. have a connection when you live in a city, really, per se. And when I moved to Hillsboro, you couldn't help but get a sense of community because the people that are down the street from you, if Mrs. McPherson died, wow, well, I knew her son. Her son runs a hardware store, and her grandson works up here at the gas station where I get pop. Mm. And there's just a connection. And then by extension, you end up being part of a community mm. and you can't help but care really mm -hmm. in a small town. I, I so get small towns now, yeah. not that they don't have their downsides, but there's a lot of great things about small towns. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where, that's where a part of that thing with the mayoring came, how I got out of myself mm. uh, and into something a little bit bigger than me. Yeah. So that's, that story is so compelling. And if nothing else, just get the book to read through that, especially if you are a idealist, naive person like Drew was, and you want to get into city government because you'll learn a few things. And it was just excellent. One of the things I want to, I want to end with because I want to be respectful of your time is, okay, cool. Let's talk about when you went on Jay Leno and then got the standing O and then, and then went back and had Robin Williams in your court and something happened. Yeah. Well, I was on Leno the first time. I don't even remember the year. A friend of mine, Ross Mark, was the talent booker at the time. And he liked me, liked my uh, material. And he got me on the Tonight Show the first time. And I got a standing... In fact, no, I'll tell you when it was. I was the first comedian on the show after 9-11. Oh, okay. That's what it was. I okay. forgot that because I remember people were all very nervous. Ooh, is America ready to laugh again? Mm -hmm. ooh, ooh. And whether I got a standing ovation <laughs> because my set was brilliant or whether I, <laughs> I got a standing ovation because people were just so grateful to be laughing yeah. again. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's the latter. Frankly, yeah. it's like the pandemic. I did a show the other night, one of the first shows in almost two years. Mm. And I noticed the audience seemed very appreciative. Yeah. I don't know how I knew yeah. that was coming across, but I did. And I thought, I know why this show is going well. I'm stumbling through material. I'm trying to remember half of it. They're just glad to be out and laughing and yeah. getting out again. Yeah. And, and that's probably... <laughs> Same reason I got the standing O yeah. after 9-11. But anyway, <laughs> so I was on the show. Fast forward seven years later, I get elected as mayor. I get a call the very next day after I've won the election. <laughs> Literally Hollywood calling. And it was Ross Mark. Hey, Drew, Jay wants you to do the show. He does? And he said, yeah, this whole mayor thing. And pretty 
somewhat savvy by then. I said, I don't want to have to do a set and then come over and do the couch. Can I just come over and do the couch? Mm -hmm. Because that's got a lot more cachet. Yeah. If you just come out and do the couch, oh my gosh, he's like Pierce Brosnan or David Niven or somebody who just comes out like an (laughs) author. And so I came out and did the couch. And, And Jay holds up a copy of the Hillsborough newspaper that says, here's Drew. Yeah. Which is how the headline went. Yeah. They were going to take off on my career. And that's <laughs> why so I understand you. I understand you're a mayor now. And, and we're talking along. And Robin Williams, let me back up for a second. So Robin Williams had been backstage and had come into the green room. And Robin Williams says to me, hey, I, I really like your stuff, man. Uh, I think you're really funny. And like most people would, who are, would have been my much smaller stature. I thought, yeah, he's just saying that. He doesn't know my material. Mm-hmm. And then he starts naming bits for verbatim from my comedy special that had just come out oh, just a couple of years before. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, son of a gun, he's, he did watch my special. <laughs> and I was, wow, thank you. So we hit it off. So he goes out and does his segment. And instead of leaving, getting up and leaving and being long gone in his car, he decides to stick around for my segment to support me. Uh And this is a big deal. Robin Williams is going to stick around for me. So Robin Williams is sitting there next to me. And you can see this if you ever pull up the show or stills posted on one of my sites. And I'm out there and Jay's talking to me about, yeah, sitting around for me. And boy, tell us about that. And it's not... And at one point, and Robin's laughing at stuff over here next to me and mm-hmm. laughing at stuff I'm saying. And Jay then says, so, so I understand uh, you had to run as a Republican to win. And I looked at him funny and I said, yeah, Jay, I am a Republican. <laughs> and you know, Jay got a little taken aback. Yeah. Robin got unbelievably silent. <laughs> and... After that, Robin never laughed at anything. Yeah. He was like, oh, my God, I didn't know I'd been supporting the Antichrist all this time. <laughs> and, and it was, I didn't care. At the, I'm like, I'm who I am, whatever. And so that was very funny. But I'll tell you what I'm really proud of, and that's really been indicative of my life. I'm one of the only people, I believe, who's ever done The Tonight Show two separate times for two completely different careers. Yeah. Um, and I'm proud of that. That's a little asterisk kind of fact, whatever. But yeah. I, that means a lot uh-huh. you know, because I've had a varied life and anyway. Yeah. I really enjoyed that story. So the, the clip is on YouTube, so it's really easy to watch that. Yeah. And it's there and all the way through and you can see when Robin checks out. And it, yeah, it's re- it's really neat because we talked we, we talked a little bit before we did the interview last week, and so I I had to look it up, and it, it's there. Yeah, it's wow. it's very, very easy to see. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So, how has having a uh, child changed your life? Oh man. I don't hardly even know how to answer that because it's going to sound so maudlin and so, I don't know, stereotypical. I will tell you this. I didn't even know. 
I had no idea what love was mm-hmm. until I had him. Mm-hmm. No idea. Yeah. I thought about it this morning. It was really upsetting. I and parents, I, I, I guess, will relate to this. I no sooner had my son, and he is just the world to me. And I love him so much, but immediately, not long after he came in the world, I was also terrified, and I'm talking terrified, and I still am every day. Mm -hmm. This morning, I was driving down the road daydreaming, and I had this vision of something happened to him running out into the road. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. And I'm like, God, quit it, Drew. God damn it, quit (laughs) it. Don't even think something like that. And I thought about it, and I thought, that's the the yang to the yin. That's what happens when you have something in your life, like a child that you love so much. How do you not sometimes have those thoughts? Because the most terrifying thing in the world is that could be taken away from you. Yes. Yeah. And uh, God, it almost, it just gets me really upset. Yeah. Think about that. I, uh, it changed me. I'll tell you this. And I'm sure parents have said this a million times. After you have him, there is nothing you do in your life where he isn't really the consideration. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing I'll tell you is my kids are grown and married and I have grandkids and that feeling never goes away. It, wow. You, you yeah. it, it, and it is so detrimental to go to worst case scenario, but you always, for some reason, whenever a situation pops up, when my daughter was giving birth and stuff like that, you always think about, oh, what could happen? And, yeah, right. and, and it's terrible and, but it's still worth it. it, it the, that feeling is, I guess it makes you you're alive and that you love something. So I, I, I will tell you, it never goes away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 it's uh, it's with you all the time. Somebody commented. I just I, I want to speak to it because backyard politics says it's refreshing to know that there are Republicans in the co- Republicans in the comedy business. And first off, I'll tell you, there's more than you think. That a lot of them are extremely quiet about it. But second off, I want to let you know that this show is about comedy and the people in comedy. And I will never have tell somebody they can't be on the show because. Of of their politics or anything that is considered controversial because I mm. don't think that should be controversial. So thanks for that comment, Backyard Politics. I don't know who you are, but thanks for watching and thank you for saying that. I would say if Drew and I got together and talked about what we uh, believed in and stuff like that, we are probably pretty far apart in a lot of things. But we're both human beings and we are, we've got some commonality and we all have commonality. So Let's look for that, folks, yeah. instead of instead of what makes us different and and maybe have a little bit better country because of it. That soapbox done. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I do want to say that this book really did. It, it sucked me in and every part of it resonated with me because I've been in a small town and actually a small town that has a really bloated fire department. So I really under I really understand what you 
went through there. And this really, this book took you on a journey. And I, journey is such a cliche, but it really took you on a journey. And I feel like I understand you as a person. And I feel like it allowed me to reflect on myself quite a bit. I, I really appreciate this book, Drew. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me. This book was arguably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because mm -hmm. it was very, it was just very hard. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a quick story. I was in Columbus, Indiana, and I had done a stand-up show about six years ago. Uh -huh. And after the show, I'm signing some autographs, and this young kid comes up to me. He must be 25, and he comes up to me and goes, Hi, Mr. Hastings, just thought I'd stop by and say hi, and I just wanted to see what you've been up to. And I hardly look up, and I say, uh, oh, I've been writing a book. And he says, yeah, that's what you told me the last time I asked you five years ago. <laughs> I almost vomited. I was so mortified. I went home that night. I got up the next day, and I made a decision, and I said, I'm not getting up for this desk. And I sat behind that desk for the next four years writing this book. Uh -huh. So I thanked that kid, whoever the hell he was in Columbus, Indiana. <laughs> That's what got me. Cause I'd been on this hamster wheel yeah. of, of writing and cutting and pasting, trying to find thinking I was cutting and pasting my way to a meaningful book. And no, and, and it was just going in circles and looking back, the book would have never come out. I'd still be in the same place. Yeah. He got me off center. Yeah. yeah. I'm so you know, glad. I want to go back real quick, if that's okay ahead. with yeah, you. That's yeah. On the conservative thing in comedy, and I know there are comedians out here who will vehemently disagree with this. There's an argument that the most simplistic argument, which is really asinine, well, the reason there's no conservatives in comedy is that conservatives aren't funny. That's BS. You know that. Mm. And then there's, there are other arguments that, well, people that are more liberal, more left-leaning are more creative types. And so they tend to head into comedy much more uh, frequently. And there may be a little truth to that, but I'm not even sure that's true. I think that when, I think that when a comedian goes into stand-up comedy I think we all start out very pure. We just want to be on stage. We have a joy about us. We just want to be funny. We want to just write stuff and make an audience laugh. We aren't thinking left. We don't, that, none of that mm -hmm. plays into anything. We just want to be funny. And I think, and, and I'm only going to quote my case because that's all I can with any authority. Mm -hmm. But I think that you, I think that the reason that you tend not to see at least conservative comedians that are apparent there is because as you journey through the world of stand-up comedy over the years, you're pressured in either subtle or not so subtle ways or innuendo to go the more liberal route. And I'll cite like an example. I can remember working with headliners and when you're young and this year, you take almost everything the headliner says is gospel. Oh, 
never wear sequins on stage. Your audience will hate you. You know, yeah. Oh, never wear sequins. You would have a, a big headliner who would be, you're working with from LA. And he says, I don't know what that, oh, that, that uh, bit you were doing about being for the death penalty was, but oh, man, that's not going to get you very far. You need to drop that kind of stuff. Hey, oh, maybe I do. And I'm just, I was just, that was just, I was just throwing that as an example, but mm. I think that, I think those kinds of things happen and they happen periodically and that ends up shaping you to a degree in standup. I know when I used to do sets, when you do, when you're going to do a, a, a late night show, or when you're going to do a standup set on a late night show, they come into the club, the the people that the producers and stuff, and they watch you do a set and they'll watch you do a 15 minute set. And then they kind of willow things down and they would say something to you like, Oh, I love this bit. And I love that thing you're opening with. I'm not sure. I like that. Th that bit where you say that about Obama. I'm not, I don't think that works. I, I, I think everybody'd be happy if you just drop that bit. And so you drop the bit because you want to do that show. Mm -hmm. But that's in a way, I think, how you get shaped. In other words, it's easier for you to be allowed to succeed if you quote toe the party line than not. Yeah. And, and and I know there are people out there who will say that wasn't my experience or this or that, but that was my experience. And I really think that there is some truth to that. I definitely paid the price for opening my mouth being a conservative when I was in Hollywood. I didn't know it at the time. I was naive. You don't want to go on rants about the Disneyfication of homosexuality. <laughs> <laughs> and then think that Somebody isn't going to not like that. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I just thought I'd put that out there and you could tell me I'm full of crap. That's all right. If everything was a true meritocracy, then there, there would be an equal amount of yeah. conservative comedians, but that's not what it is. It's politics are different than conservative and liberal. There's a lot of different that's right. types of politics, but yeah. Yeah. That's true. And there's yeah. a funny, I mean, the, to me, ultimately the thing I subscribe to that's, true across the board, at least for me, only the truth is funny. Yeah. That's the basis under everything. Yeah. Yeah. And almost all comedy comes from pain mm -hmm. ultimately. Yeah. And I believe those two things other than that, it's all up in the air. Yeah. A hundred percent agree with you on that. This yeah. is, this has been great, Drew. I really, like I said, I'll, I will beat the drum for your book for until you get to be a bestseller because this is just fantastic. I'm going to pop a picture of it up again real quick. This is what you're going to see when you go to Amazon and pre-order. Or this is going to be the audio. If you're listening to the audio version, it's out today. Make sure you. The audio version. Yeah. The audio version of my podcast. Um, oh. So if you're listening to the audio version of Behind the Bits, it's out on the day of release. So make sure that you and there will be in the show notes, uh, there will be a link to it. Go get it. And I would, if you want to. Try to buy it from a local bookstore if you can, mm -hmm. rather than uh, Amazon. But if you really like Kindle like I do, buy it from a local bookstore and get the Kindle versions. I do that a lot too. So whatever you want to do, support local business if you can. If not, 
get it on Amazon so you support Drew. It's a good book, and I guarantee if you're a comedian, if you're a human being, or you're a politician, you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Drew. This has been a really good talk, and it may, like I said, the, the book did inspire me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I had a really good time today. It made me, it was thought provoking. And I, I, you do a great cast. Thank you. Good. Thank you.